pray once again as we ask God to attend our time. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you that we can gather here as your people, that we can be ready in our hearts and our minds, our lives to receive what you have for us. Lord, allow your words to transform us, to conform us to the image of Christ as we submit to it. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and allow them to flop open to Romans chapter 12. I'm sure that's where your Bible opens up to. I know when I come here during the week in the mornings and I prepare my heart to study, I take my Bible and open it up and it just seems to open to that passage all the time now. And we are focusing our attention once again on chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. And so I want to read them again for us as we kind of put the the final nail, if you will, or the final confirmation or the, the final information that we need from the Apostle Paul to understand what this means by what it says so that we can be doing it this morning. I urge you, therefore, he says, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I trust, as I have been having, that you also find it a great joy and a riching time to be together studying this passage as we have been over the last several weeks, as God is unfolding to us really just one branch of a massive mind shaft, if you will, of God's wisdom for our own lives. It's been really a great joy for me to see our, our own spiritual lives as I've kind of sat on the sidelines in conversations and in Sunday school classes and watched our spiritual lives as they are enlightened and our spiritual hearts begin to, to pulsate with excitement as we begin to embrace what is concerning just how it is that we here, the Christian, are sanctified in an everyday kind of way for the practice of living out what... God is required and calling us to do in our lives to His glory and honor. I truly believe that many of us have been quite stunned to learn, as we have seen in this text, that Christian living does not begin or end with outward behavior. It doesn't begin with doing outward things, as many religions try to say, nor does it end with the reality of being something different in our outward behavior. It begins and ends with how we think. How we think. How we process the information and how that affects our very lives. Who we are on the inside. The spirit of our mind. The spirit of our mind. That's how the Apostle Peter said it. How the thoughtful engagement of our inner man, the the thoughtful engagement with the Word of God in our inner man concerning all that God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, in paying the penalty for our sin and saving us by faith. That is something that we have to have in our minds all the time. 
And as our spiritual minds are, are enraptured in the reality of the mercies of God, all that God has accomplished and bestowed upon us in Christ, then we are then, through that understanding, motivated to offer our very lives to our Savior for His use. Now that is massive for us. That is massive for us as a people if we truly are embracing it. Because no, no longer are we motivated to live for ourselves. That's who we were. We lived for ourselves. We lived for our honor, our glory, our desires, our wants, our whatever, fill in the blank. It was us. We were the king of our environment. And no longer are we now living for ourselves by way of motivation. No longer are we motivated to use our words for our good and our glory. No longer are we motivated to live for the fulfillment of our desires and our wants. But now, in Christ, and understanding the mercies of God on our behalf, understanding that now, because we have salvation in Christ, we are living in a realm of the constant gift of the mercies of God being bestowed upon us, we now desire to live for the glory of God. Because we love God. Because the essence of godly love is in dying to self. Christ said, no greater love hath no man than he laid down his life for his friends. Maybe that would be a better way for us to read the word love in the scriptures when we see it as a command and as an application for our lives to read, am I laying down my life for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the people around me? Am I laying down my life? We now desire our lives to be an outward picture of holiness. You shall be holy for I am holy. It says people who live lives that are agreeable with the very nature and character of God. That's what Paul says here in verse 1. A sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Remember that is agreeable with the nature and character of God. One that reflects and looks like God. No longer straying from the truth. Because our lives are, in and of themselves, reasoned worship to God. Not just willy-nilly, not just activity on the outside that we say, oh, it's spiritual activity. Not just a, a, a one-week event whereby we come and gather with these people that we say are religious people or are part of a church and we say, oh, we worshiped God today. No, we're no longer like that. We're no longer living without thinking, no longer living as the world lives in the ignorance, the mindlessness, the no thought of God kind of mindlessness. No, now we are living, processing the truth of God, which shows in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. In a word, our lives are transformed. Not by behavioral change, not by outward activity, things that we do by way of our own behavior, but by, as we have been saying, the renovation of the spirit of our minds. The renovation of the spirit of our minds. Because of an understanding of the mercies of God. This phrase is so hard to get past. 
Yes, we've worked past it. We've thought through it. We've gone through the, the wording of this. But this phrase is what drives it all. We must constantly wake up as our feet hit the ground, as we take that conscious breath, as we think about the day. We have to think about that reality. We are under the mercies of God. And we have to live with an understanding of the mercies of God. And we now, because of that, desire the truth of God. We saturate ourselves with the truth of God. We are now processing that truth that we are being saturated in, putting it into practice in our lives, and thereby our behavior changes. Thereby we are different outwardly than we were before. This is why it's so foolish to try to say that a Christian, someone who is truly saved and in Jesus Christ, can claim to know Christ and go on living any way they want, or go on living contrary to what the Bible says, gladly and willfully. That is not a Christian. No longer are we conformed to this world, it says. No longer are we conformed to its thinking and to its ways. How can you live like the world and not be conformed to the world? Paul says, now in Christ, because you understand the mercy of God, which means you understand who you were before God ever saved you, that you didn't deserve what you have. And now in Christ, you have been given everything that you did not deserve because you understand that now. Now you're being transformed into a biblical thinker and into a biblical doer. As it says in James, we are not ineffectual hearers only. But we are doers of that which we are hearing. We're doers of it. Why? Because we understand that we always live under the mercies of God. And so this is where we have been. And this is where we have brought ourselves to up to this point in our study. We have learned that our thinking is not to be subjective thinking. We are not to live according to our feelings, according to our opinions, according to the feelings and opinions of someone else. Based upon those things, we are not to live or on the feelings of the world around us and how the world defines life. No, we are rather to be objective. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, all of those things are to be driven by the truth, which is found only in the Word of God as we study it and gain an understanding of what God means by what He says. This is key for our living. Because all of us would like to believe, and all of us would like to say about ourselves that we are discerning people. If I asked you if you're a discerning person, most of us, if not all of us, would say, yes, I think I'm pretty discerning. I don't think there would be anyone here who would say that they live a blatantly unbiblical life. Anyone who's been in this church for any length of time who claims to know Jesus Christ would not rightly say, yeah, I just go live any way I want. It really doesn't matter to me. I don't think about it at all. I just live an unblatantly, a blatantly unbiblical life. No one would say that. We believe that we are doing the right things. Living in such a way that is not contrary to the Word of God. That's what we mean when we say, yeah, I'm living the right way. I'm, do, I'm living my life that's not contrary to the Word of God. None of us would say that we live worldly. Thereby, all of us would say we are discerning people, right? We would say that. But how do you know? How do you know if you're discerning? 
How do you know the way you are living is not worldly? Most of us would answer, well, I do what the Bible says. That would be our answer. I, I just do what the Bible says, or at least I try to. And so then that leads to another implication. And the implication is, do we know what the Bible actually says? Right? I do what the Bible says, okay, or at least I try to do what the Bible says, okay, then do you know what the Bible says? Because it's one thing to know what the Bible says, but more importantly, do you know what the Bible means by what it says? Because it's one thing to know what the Bible says, there are many people... There are many people who aren't even in this building this morning who would say they know what the Bible says. But then we have to go a step further and answer the question, what does it mean by what it says? And when we ask that question of ourselves, what does it mean by what it says? What is being asked is simply this. What are the definitions of the words from a particular passage? That's part of it. But more importantly, what are the implications of that meaning in our life? In other words, how am I interacting with its meaning? In other words, what am I doing with the truth I'm hearing? It's James all over again. What am I doing with what I'm hearing? Am I just being an ineffectual listener, hearer, or am I doing it? You see, if we're going to be living as God would have us live, as Paul is exhorting us here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, then we must know the will of God. That's God's will for our life. That's God's will for His people. That's God's will for the Christian. We must know what His will is. That's His desire. And the only way to know it, and the only way to understand the will of God, is to have our mind renewed and saturated in His Word. It's the only way. We're not going to know it any other way. It is this then that we gain what we all want in life. Discernment. Discernment. Discernment is not simply knowing truth. Discernment is rightly knowing and applying the implications of that truth. I was thinking about this this week, and I, I like to do this from time to time, say, oh, what, what's the dictionary? How does the dictionary define that word? How does the dictionary define the word discernment? I looked it up this week. Discernment is simply this, discrimination to make a judgment. Discrimination to make a judgment, or acuteness of judgment and understanding. Acuteness of judgment and understanding. So, in fact, it's the act or the instance of the acuteness of judgment. Making a decision, deciding between what is this and what is this, deciding between two things. Now take that thinking back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, because we are told that we are not to allow ourselves to be imprinted by the way the world thinks and thereby how it lives, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but rather we are to have our minds renovated renovated and by the way that implies that implies having our minds renovated that implies that we already have worldly thinking in us if you've ever bought an old house you know that when you buy an old house some rooms need to be gutted 
Some rooms need complete renovation. Others you can leave by themselves. Well, guess what? By the very reality that we need renovation means there needs some things in us to be gutted, which means bad things are there. We need our thinking already. We have imprints of the world in our thoughts. Ways in which we're already thinking from our pre-salvation days that need to be rooted out. They need to be changed. Things that we have sanctified in our own doing. We haven't even thought about them. We haven't even been challenged with them. Partly because we spend no time in the Word of God. We need renovation in our minds. We need new thinking so that we can have an acuteness of judgment when it comes to living. An acuteness of judgment. Here's how Paul puts it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I want your mind renewed. right? Be transformed by the renovation, the renewing of your mind. That is through the word of God. So that, this is the purpose. This is the purpose why God does this in our life. So that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is perfect. That which is good. That which is acceptable. I want your mind renewed because when your mind is renewed, you have a new ability, if you will. You have a a discernment. You can tell what the will of God is. You know the direction. You don't only know what it says, you know what it means by what it says. You now can make that right decision. And I trust that we understand when our minds are renovated by a rightly understood truth... You can prove the will of God. That, 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 that word prove is a very important word. It's a word for making a proper judgment. It's a term that comes by way of ancient times when someone would be able to tell whether a person was bringing the right amount of items to trade. They would, they would prove it. They would test it. They would put it under scrutiny. They needed to decide, is this right or is not right? And so if you brought a, some weed and you were buying something else, or if you brought something else to buy, and you, you, they would put it on a scale. And the scale, they would put on things that were known to be that weight, and it would prove it. You say, I got a pound of weed. They would put a pound of things here and put it on there. If it didn't weigh out right, you don't have a pound of weed. It would prove it. It would... It would Test it. The scale would make the judgment between the two. It was the testing of that validity. Well, this is what Paul is saying to us here. He's saying, listen, if you're going to live rightly, if your life is going to reflect the very things that God says, the will of God, if you're going to live rightly, if you're going to offer yourself... As God commands in the way in which He has commanded it. And if we love God, we keep His commandments. That's what Jesus said. So if we're going to do what God has said, and the way in which we understand, or the way in which an understanding of God's mercy drives us to that, then we need to know the will of God. And the only way to know the will of God is to be able to discern, to prove. To make a correct assessment about what it says. And then, that comes when your mind is renewed. You're going to be able to make a correct assessment when your mind is renewed. Now think about the implications of that. 
If you're thinking worldly, there is no way for you to make a correct assessment as to what God would have you do. The way to live, the way to go, the way to respond to your brother and sister, the way to respond by way of the church, anything. If you're thinking in a worldly kind of way, there's no way that you're going to understand the mind and the will of God because God is not worldly in any kind of way. You have to have your mind renovated with the thinking of God so that you can prove, so that you can test, so that you can tell, so that you can discern what the will of God is. And so we are proving, we are testing what is the good of the will of God, that which is good by way of its very quality. It's not that, oh, this is good, but this isn't bad. No, it's the quality of it. It's, it's good by its very essence. It's like Jesus said to the lawyer who asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to must be saved? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You know what Jesus was saying? Do you recognize me as being God? Because you just called me good and only God is good. This is the reality. It's God. We may prove what is godliness, what is godlike, that which is good, that which is agathos, purely good, that which is acceptable. That's the same word as in verse 1, which is agreeable with the very character and nature of God. What is perfect, telos, what is complete, fully matured, without fail, without any kind of stain, that which is perfect. People say, well, God wants me to do this, really? How do you know that? Well, I just feel good about it. I have a peace about it. You ever done that? You ever said that about you? Well, I have a peace about it. Listen, my flesh has the peace about a lot of sin. That's a dangerous place to go. Because I'll tell you what, there are some times my flesh has zero peace when God's telling me to go that direction. My flesh says, you don't want to go that way. That's trouble. That's pain. That's suffering. That means you're going to be treated this way. That means your reputation might not be seen as what you hoped it would be seen as. But God's clearly saying, this is what you must do. My flesh is saying, I don't want to do that. So if I go by my subjective thoughts and feelings, I'm going to head the wrong direction. The will of God is not that. The will of God is perfect. It's acceptable. It's good. So it can't just be anything. It can't be, well, that's what it means to me. Right? You read a passage, you read a verse, and you ask your friend, well, what's it mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it means. I want to know what it means to God. And then I want to process the implications of that meaning in my life. So it's this that we are after. It's this that we are after in our lives. It's this that God is after by the renovation of our minds. It's this that we are after in striving in our practice, living out in our lives, having our behavior reflect the untainted, God-like, fully matured Christ-likeness that He desires. That's what we're after. This becomes very practical for us as we live, very practical as we process the Word of God. And I want to show us this by way of an example. 
I want us to go, I've mentioned the book of James a few times this morning. I want us to go over to the book of James for a moment. Turn in your Bibles to the book of James. Because James is a very penetrating book. That's funny to say that about any book in the Bible because they're all penetrating. But James is a a book about the outworking of genuine faith. The outworking of genuine faith. Many people claim to have faith in Jesus. Both genuine believers and those who are, are not genuine believers. That they believe they're believers and yet some are not. All claim faith. So how do we discern that truth concerning our own faith? Concerning the faith of someone who's claiming it? Well, James is a great place to go. Because James gives several tests in order to discern the genuine faith, what genuine faith looks like. There are several tests that you go through, James. In fact, it becomes quite clear just in the words of James in chapter 2. Because faith is not, in and of itself, a tangible object. Right? Faith is not something you can just go get a bag of, go buy it on the grocery store shelf. If I was to ask you to pull a bag of faith out, you couldn't do it. No one brought a bag of faith with them this morning. Why? Because faith is an intangible thing. You can't hold on to it. But the results of genuine faith can be seen. In other words, its works are tangible. Right? James says it in chapter 1, verse 14... I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 14 and following. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith? Right? The implications of that are huge. And a lot of people say they have faith. Well, what use is that? What use is to say you have faith, but you have no works? In other words, you say you believe in Jesus. You say you have faith in whatever it is, but it produces nothing in your life. There's nothing that can show that you have faith. What use is that? Can that faith save him? And then he gives an example. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give to them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? He's using that as an example. You say you have faith, but you do not love. That's the idea. You do not sacrifice yourself. You don't die to yourself. You don't give of yourself on behalf of this brother then what use is your faith? If it hasn't changed you, is it real faith at all? Even so, faith, he says, verse 17, if it has no works, it's dead. It's by itself. It's produced nothing. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Right? You say you have faith, but I say I have works. All right then show me your faith without the works. Right? It's the same question I asked. Pull out your bag of faith. Let me see your bag of faith. Hold on to it. Throw it around. Let me look at it. Hand it to me so I can look at it. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. That's the only way to see it. You believe that God is one? Good. You do well. Right? Their faith. You have faith that God is one? Oh, great. Well, you do well. The demons also believe that. 
(laughs) That's a harsh word. You're no higher than the demons. You're no better off than the demons. You're in the same place the demons are. They have faith. They believe that God is. But are you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless? You see the idea? James is pretty clear on a very basic level. If someone says they have faith, but if they have no visible result of that in their life, then at the very least, that claim of faith has to be suspect. At least on a saving level. Now, the living out of faith and the implications of living out faith is that a life that is living out faith is living according to the Word of God. It's living according to what God says. Right? In other words, if we say it in the terms of Romans 12, right, it's living out not a worldly life. If you say you believe in God, if chapters 1 through 11 is true of your life, if you realize who you were without God and that God's wrath abides on you and by faith you embrace Jesus Christ, you realize God has justified you, you are now standing in the place of Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, then your life is to show it. If there's no showing it, then you have to ask yourself, do I really believe? But there are times, someone will say, there are times when we as Christians live worldly, isn't there? I mean, think about, our, think about your own life. There are times when you, as a Christian, truly genuine, saved Christian, live worldly. But often, we are convinced and we have convinced ourselves that we're not living worldly. We're living worldly, but we've convinced ourselves that we're not living worldly simply because we have not been thinking implicationally about what we have heard and what we have read. Let me see if I can show us this by way of an example. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone? Most likely with your spouse or maybe with your sibling, maybe a co-worker. And a conflict rises between the two of you. You're in a conversation with someone who's close to you, maybe someone who you work with, whatever. Particularly this happens in husband and wife relationships and husband, wife, children relationships and sibling relationships in relationships with us in the church. We're part of the same body, right? You have a conflict. And the other person says to you, what's wrong? How many guys, you ever hear that? What's wrong? Wives, you ever hear that from your husband? What's wrong? And you respond in this way. You say, well, I'm mad at you. You made me mad. And the implication is that it happened by what they said and what they did to you. They did something to you. They said something to you. And that made you mad. If, if you've had that in your life, just, just put your hand up quietly you know, so nobody else sees it. it's a common thing right it's common we interact with others all the time we struggle with one another all the time in relationships and we as Christians we know what the scripture says and we believe that we're living for God we're living in honor to God and so I want this person to know right 
I want them to know this conflict that we are having. And I want them to know it's because they did something that made me mad. I want them to know that. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible say we're to go to one another and we're to make things right? Well, you need to know that what you did to me made me mad. In other words, if you didn't make me mad, then we wouldn't be having this conflict. That's what we're saying. If you didn't do what you did, then we wouldn't have this conflict between us. There wouldn't be this rift between us. But can I say to all of us here this morning that if we think that way, then we are thinking worldly. Let me say that again. Because I see your minds are processing. Wait a minute, you just threw a wrench in, my, in the gear shifts in my head. If you are thinking that way, you are thinking worldly. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. Wait, whoa, whoa, they hit the brakes. In those kinds of conflicts, the person actually did something against me. They did something that was wrong. They did something sinful. They did something that should not have been done to me. And when they did it, it made me mad. Are you saying that I was wrong? Are you saying that in this I'm wrong? After all, I was the one sinned against. I was the one who got my my toes stepped on. Are you saying by that that I'm being worldly? Well, you got part of it correct. They did sin against you. But that's not why there's a conflict between the two of you. The problem is not that they made you mad. The problem is that when they sinned against you, you chose to respond with an attitude of madness. When they sinned against you, you chose to get mad. You see, we say, you made me mad And what we are doing is we are putting the cause of the conflict on them only. When in fact, if you look at any conflict, any conflict, I don't care what it is, any conflict. If you look at any conflict in those ways, then you are thinking like the world thinks and not like God. Why? Because God says that the real cause of all conflicts with any relationship is not that a sin has been committed by one guilty party against an innocent party. In fact, turn just a couple pages to James chapter 4 because James chapter 4 tells us exactly why there's conflicts between people. James chapter 4 says what? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? How dare the Bible ask that question? How dare God put in His Word this question because we already have the answer to it. It's the other person. They're the reason there's conflicts. They're the reason there's trouble. If everything would be right with them, everything would be good with us. How dare God ask the question? How dare God tell us where the source is? We know where it is. Really? 
What is the source? Is it not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members? Pleasure. It's an interesting word. It's the word where we get the word hedonism. That's the root word of the word they're used in the, in the original language. Hedonism. You know what hedonism is? Hedon, hedonism is the desire and, and acting out of life as if pleasure and happiness are the highest good for you. Doing what you do for your own self, for your own pleasure, your own happiness. This is why I said to the, to the person who walked into my office when I was pastoring in Ohio and said, what do you hope to get from this time of ours together when they were having marriage problems? He said, I just want my happy marriage back. I said, you're aiming at the wrong thing. That's hedonism. To live as if pleasure and happiness, pleasure and happiness as defined by you, is your highest good, your highest desire. So what does that mean by way of the implications when James says, is it not your, is not the source of conflicts among you your hedonistic desires? What are the implications of that? See, it's one thing to know the definition of the word. It's another thing now to go, okay, so what does that mean by what it says in my life? In other words, if you're not going to think worldly, if you're going to have a mind renewed, renovated, just in this one area, just in this area concerning conflicts, which is a massive area since we are built and created relationally. We have relationship with God. We have relationship with one another. There is relationship all over the place. Just in this one area, what are the implications? It's a huge area of our life. Most people in this room are married. You have a wife, a husband. We have children, people we interact with all over the place. So if I'm going to live according to the will of God in this area, if I'm going to prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect by means of what God desires, the heart and mind of God in a perfect good way, that which is ultimate good, ultimately agreeable with the character and nature of God, and is fully matured, then I need to understand to begin to process in my life all of those areas which I am living for my own pleasure. My own definition of happiness. Because godly thinking answer to the question as why I'm having conflict with a person is not because they sinned against me. In other words, I'm unhappy. My pleasure has been taken away because you did it. God says, no, that's not the reason. The reason is because you're not thinking about yourself biblically and thereby not acting in a God-honoring way in response to when God allows these things to happen in your life when someone is sinning against you. Christ's likeness is to respond differently. So by way of implication... The other person does not make us mad. We are sinfully mad because our defined world of happiness has been encroached upon. Because of that, 
And because that is our highest desire, then we sin in return. And we sin with an unloving attitude. And we say, you made me mad. We put the blame on them. This has been with us since the beginning, folks. It's been with us since the garden. God said, Adam, where are you? What have you done? Adam said, God, it was that woman you gave me. The reason we're having a conflict with you, God, the reason we're having trouble in this relationship that you made perfect is because you did it. And we have carried that down throughout the ages. It's there. It's in us. It's our desire for our own happiness, our own love. We love ourselves. We love ourselves more than anything else. Is it any wonder that James has to say in verse 10, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Don't speak against one another. He who speaks against your brother judges his own or judges his own brother speaks against the law. Judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of it. It's one lawgiver, one judge. Christ how much have you done to Christ that he has forgiven you for Jesus said to Simon the leper to Simon the Pharisee when he was in Simon's house and a sinner came into the house and was sitting at the feet of Jesus crying on the feet of Jesus rubbing the feet of Jesus with her hair and Simon was thinking to himself doesn't he know that's a sinner Jesus, of course, knowing Simon's heart, because Jesus is God, says, Simon, ever since I came in here, you've neither washed my feet, you didn't give me anything. You treated me like I was just some stranger, and yet ever since I've been here, she's been at my feet crying, wiping my feet with her hair. Simon, don't you understand that he who has been forgiven much loves much? Implying that Simon didn't think he needed much forgiveness. I'm not a sinner like this woman. She understood who Jesus was, and so she was just saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see how easy it is to think worldly? See how easy it is to think like Simon the Pharisee? You can't go through the scriptures and come away with the idea that unless others fulfill my so-called worldly hedonistic desires for pleasure that I will be ever happy. You'll never find that in scripture. God is telling us in Romans chapter 12, listen, your happiness is going to come not from the fulfillment in mankind, not from thinking the way the world thinks, not fulfilling your life with all the things the world thinks is happiness. It doesn't matter if it's from your spouse. It doesn't matter if it's from your siblings. It doesn't matter if it's from anybody else that you interact with any other time. Your greatest joy, your greatest happiness must be in and through your relationship with God alone. He must be enough. 
when Christ is enough, it doesn't matter what God asks you to give up. It doesn't matter if He asks you to give up that argument, to give up that simple possession, to give up what you have. It doesn't matter because you have everything in Christ. Christ is enough. Christ is the one who rules you. He's all you need. God has given you already everything you need for life and godliness. See, part of our problem is that we don't really believe that. The proof is how we live. We live as if God hasn't given us everything we need in Christ. We attempt to fill our needs through those around us. The things around us rather than in Christ alone. So Romans chapter 12, I trust we can see now why I said last Lord's Day that this is the fulcrum point of this entire epistle. Without an understanding of what is being said here, we will not end up in the right place. We will be thinking we're doing the right thing when we're not. When Paul says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, let your dying to self, let the the reality that you give up and relinquish the the service of yourself, let let that reality, the implications of that in every area of life be without hypocrisy, be without playing a game, be without putting that face mask up and saying, yeah, I'm loving you, but really you're not, you're loving yourself. You can't do that if you aren't thinking about what God has given you. See, we'll run headlong in all kinds of directions, misguided from our own moralistic, worldly thinking. Never knowing, truly, if we are actually doing what is honoring to God. None of the following exhortations that come in these verses from 3 all the way to the end of this book, none of them will make actual sense to us. In fact, we'll get tired of doing them, we'll redefine them, we'll change the way they come out. We certainly, we certainly in no way will put ourselves in subjection to the governing authorities. But when we live under an understanding of the mercy of God, knowing who He is and what He's done for us, then we can rightly see our own sin. We see the attributes and actions of our old self. We open the Word of God, and the Word of God exposes our thinking. It does exactly what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says. It divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It doesn't say, hey, I'm going to tell you how to act. No, it gets down to how you think. The intentions of the heart. And you open the word of God and you listen to what it says and you're challenged in your worldly thinking. And as your mind is renovated by the word and you're challenged with the implications of what that means in your life, how that 
gets to you specifically and generally by way of its implications, then you begin to walk by faith. You begin to trust God. You begin to say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way. You trust in His Word and you live completely different than the world around you. It changes you. You're motivated not by your own definition of happiness, but by God's. You're satisfied in Him, and you're satisfied in trusting Him for your every need. And here's the implication for us right now. We think this isn't for us. Then we've, that we've already got this down, that we're doing okay. I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm good with all of this. Boy, it'd sure be nice if so-and-so would hear this message because then the relationship we have would all be okay. Then we need to hear what Paul says in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. We're going to get into this next time. But listen, folks, we will not think as God thinks without beginning at a humble place. Realizing, man, I got a lot to learn. I got a lot to learn. You see, worldly thinking says, I'm all good. Worldly thinking says, I've read the Bible. Those verses don't apply to me. Worldly thinking says, to the young man who's not married, when it says, love your wife as Christ loved the church, worldly thinking says, well, that's not a verse for me because I'm not married. Well, it may not be for you implicationally in a specific way, but it certainly is implicational for you in a general way. Because the word love implies to everybody. You see, to think any other way is worldly thought. See, these very verses here, and every one of the more than 31,000 plus verses in the Word of God, have implications for each one of our lives, either specifically or generally. We cannot say, that's not for me. And discernment comes from being saturated in the Word of God and understanding not just the definitions of words, but also thinking about the implications of what God means by what He says in our very lives. The reason that some of us, and all of us at times, have struggle with sin is because we haven't thought about the implications of what God says. Having a renovated mind, renovated by the master builder, will not only bring discernment in your life, but also the God-honoring way in which you should live. So what is the goal of our Christian conduct? We've titled that for the last now six weeks. What's the, what is our Christian conduct? Well, we can't say it's to please ourselves. We can't even say that it's ultimately to please others. No. It's not even to be above criticism that may come our way. In fact, as a Christian, we are not to be overly interested in what other people may think. You notice I said that carefully. We're not to be overly interested in what other people think. 
We are to be interested in what God thinks. It's all about his will. It's all about who God is. And so Paul says, renew your minds and you will not only find and prove that the will of God is good, but you will find it to be acceptable and perfect. That means it will become your delight and you'll want to know it and you'll want to carry it out in your life more and more and more. And Paul gets very practical after this. He begins by how this begins, this interaction with us in the body of Christ. And then he turns to those outside the body of Christ and the world around us. How does this interact in that? So Paul gets very practical in this. All because we understand we live in the mercy of God. That's the realm in which we operate. We are in the mercy of God. And we'll get to all that next time. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Those are words. Those words mean something. And when we say we love you, our lives ought to be striving to reflect that as we relinquish our grasp, our sinful grab upon our own pleasures and desires. Love is a full sacrifice. Your word tells us to have the attitude that was in Christ. When he left the glories of heaven and came and took on the form of a man. Came into humanity and humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The most heinous, horrific of all death. Lord, if that's dying to self, that your will might be done always doing your will, always following what you would have, regardless of what the personal, physical cost was, then Lord, we have a long way to go. Help us to walk submissively to you as we understand your word. Help us to push against the flesh, even in the desire to not want to spend time doing the hard work to understand what your word means. It's easy to be easy. Lord, help us to go against the ease that we might be challenged in our own hearts to look deeply in your word that we might understand your mind, have a discerning heart, that we would know we're doing exactly what you would have us do. And we'll honor you through it all because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.